Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club. This is episode 123 on Fritz Leiber's The Knight and Knave of Swords. My name is Jeff, and with me today is that aging adventurer, Hoy. Mostly aging, not so much adventurer. (laughs) Your adventuring (laughs) days are behind you. Yep. (laughs) And joining us today is the author of Beneath the Mantle, Empire of the Undead, and Cthulhu Kaiju, co-owner of Night Owl Publishing, and game designer behind Those Who Walk in Smoke, The Chaos Gods Come to Meatlandia, Invasion of the Tuber Tuber Dudes, and others, Ahimsa Kerp. Welcome to the show. Great to have you. Can you tell us a little bit about your history with speculative fiction and role-playing games? Yeah, I got into role-playing, I think, later than most sort of OSR people. I got in on AD&D 2nd Edition, um, and so I didn't really know a lot of the earlier stuff until the days of G+. I didn't even really know about uh, Appendix N until the days of G+, although I read a lot as a kid, so I'd already read most of Appendix N by the time I heard about it. I'm very similar. I was born in 80, so when I started gaming in 90, that's when 2nd Edition was brand new. So I also started with 2nd Edition, and I didn't get into AD&D and BX and all of that kind of stuff until the kind of backlash against 4th Edition was getting big on the internet. Ahimsa, you're, um, at least the Night Owl body of work is known for being you know, sort of um, more on the gonzo end of OSR. Was that sort of uh, always in your, uh, you know, in your sort of uh, aesthetic and was that developed through your reading and, and playing from the very, very first or something that came along later? Oh, that's a good question. Um, yeah, it is gonzo for sure. I think I personally, it's my way of dealing with not another elves and orcs and goblins story. So like, I like to change that up. And if you're going to eat a watermelon, eat a watermelon. And so put in, you know, giant space worms and stuff because... Why not? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and was that also reflective of the kind of fiction that you like to read and and the other kind of works? You know, I mean, this place for everything because you actually have a, a vanilla adventure too as part of your portfolio, right? That's true. Um, no, yeah, kind of. I love transgressive fiction, and actually, I think there's something to be said about uh, our book today. Uh, but I also think transgressive fiction doesn't necessarily work in a um, interactive fashion so i think gonzo is probably as close as you can get in a role-playing game to sort of like that sort of uneasy like not sure how you feel about something kind of mode well then in terms of books that you would recommend our listeners read for inspiration are there things you would like to recommend uh so many uh of course everyone's table is different but i think uh these two that i'm gonna say do have a lot of utility Um, there's the Chronicle book series that they do like Nordic tales and tales from Japan. And they're, they're sort of illustrated folklore and legends. And it's a pretty rich well, I think you can draw from, um, as a player or game master. And then, you know, where this book today is in the frozen North. And I think the Icelandic sagas, especially, uh, Njal saga and also Gisli saga are full of, um, kind of gamer fodder as well. Cool. It's funny that you mentioned Yell Saga because just last uh, episode we did a Warm Ouroboros and E.R. Edison did a translation of Yell Saga, I believe. So, oh, I didn't know that. That's so cool. So, Ahimsa, which version of the Knight and Knave of Swords are you working with? Um, I think the Grafton books. It's the one that has like uh, it's pretty cool cover, but it has kind of an inexplicable Celtic cross on it. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Do you know when that's from? Uh, 1991, I believe. Okay, cool. How about you, Hoy? What are you working with? All right, I split my time between the ebook and the book club edition of the first hardcover, Ooh. which has a Tom Canty cover. Uh, very nice, although uh, Fafford looks a little, um, I don't know, Fleetwood Mac, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> circa, circa rumors. <laughs> And it's interesting because that cover uh, looks so much like the cover he did for Swords Point that it looks like very much Fafford the Great Master could end up being in Riverdale. 
Riverdale? Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. not right. Uh, Riverside. 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 As soon yeah. as I said yeah. that, I knew I was saying the wrong yeah. thing. Yeah. And I'm reading the Fantasy Masterworks second book of Linkmar, which compiles the last three books into one. And I'm sorry, Chris Moore, but this cover is really ugly and really boring. Um, and I don't, I don't believe that that is neither Fafford nor Grey Mouser on the cover of this thing. Um, but yeah, not, not, not a big fan of the artwork on this, but it does. Um, it collects the last three, three books in one big fatty tome. So I guess we can go ahead and take a look at our high Gaxian word of the day. Hoy, have we got a word picked out yet? Yeah, I, I had a bunch of words, but I think I'm going to go with Rick Burns. Gesh. Gesh. Which, again, I'm totally surprised since you mentioned in the book club that we had not picked it for any of our episodes yet. Is that correct? That's correct. We have not. Wow. So, uh, gesh, which in Irish folklore means an obligation or prohibition magically imposed upon a person. And in fact, this book doesn't use it the least out of all the Fafford and Grey Master books, but it's still used five times, mostly in the first two stories. Um, but it's very frequently referred to in the previous uh, Fafford and Master books. But... Um, Ahimsa, you look, you're nodding there. You look like you might have a word or two that you might want to contribute. Well, and before we move on to some other words, I wanted to chat about this word a bit more. Because also yeah. it's interesting because you're saying gesh and the thing you just picked said gesh. A lot of people say yeah. geese. Um, yeah. Some people say gayus. Some people say yeah. uh, geus. And I was noticing yeah. that um, Rick, who is Irish, was saying geus. Right. That's what I had always said, you know, but I'm just going with what the, you know, <laughs> this thing just said. <laughs> yeah. And it is a frequent point of conflict for a lot of gamers as to yeah. their, their, the correct pronunciation right. of the word G-E-A-S. All right. I'm going to say we have a genuine Irishman in our book club, so I'm going to go with his pronunciation until, until told otherwise. <laughs> fair, fair. So, yeah. Hamza, what are, what are your nominations? Uh, honorable mention to Wittershins, which uh, I know Gaiman and Tolkien both use. And it just, you know, it just means counterclockwise, but it's always fun to see. Mm-hmm. Uh, but right. the one you have to choose, I think, is Hoydens, the vagabond Hoydens. Mm. And uh, I guess go. Hoydens is just a boisterous girl. She could go on the uh, the, the chart of, uh, what was it, the, uh, what's the, uh, the streetwalker chart there? <laughs> Yes, advanced Dungeons and Dragons in the back. There, there is a what is it? The Harlots, like the random Harlots table, right? <laughs> yeah, and there's like the what is it? This the oh, there's the one that it really Slo- cracked me Slo- up. Oh, slovenly troll. Slo- yes, the Slo- <laughs> slovenly troll. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that poor slovenly troll. Yeah, it's so bad. Yeah, um, but it 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 pairs nicely with this particular book that we've read uh that 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 table so um (laughs) i guess we can go ahead and go into the library and start chatting about knight and knave of swords ahimsa what are your thoughts about this collection well i say on one hand this book and ice magic are kind of like a sad little coda he farted out at the end but there is still some merit to it, I think, if you dive into it. Yes, absolutely. I, I, I agree with that. Do you want to expound on that, on that a little bit? Uh, one of the things that, that I've heard you talking about in the previous books is sort of their relationship with the women around them. And I think that that really comes to a head in this one. That women are way more empowered in this than anything else. You've got like your little mouse, Cersei Lannister, doing her little things, uh, Sif and Afrit are in a lot of ways kind of like the protagonists of it. Uh, even Payne's kind of living her best life. So I think there's a lot of sort of weird empowerment in this, but <laughs> uh, maybe inadvertent, but. <laughs> Absolutely. Hoy, what are your thoughts about this collection? I think like many people, uh, yes, you definitely, definitely don't want to read this as your first exposure to Fafford and the Grey Mouser. And uh, if I had read this when it first came out, I would have just been like, I never want to read a library book again. Um but now approaching middle age, or maybe even depending on your point of view, well into middle age, I can sort of appreciate a lot more of what's going on, even though there's a lot of distasteful elements in the book, which I know that Jeff, you'll really be, have a lot to say about. Um, so, and I agree with you with him. So I was talking about just before, I, I feel like there's a, almost a whole parallel series that was never told about Afri and Sif and they, their whole parallel sword and sorcery series that, that's, you know, uh, just like Fafford and the Mouser, but maybe a little bit more companionable. Well, they're both very companionable. Um, and I think there is an interesting tension in Libra's work between 
the ooh, naughty, sexy times and an actual real appreciation of women. Um, and, and it's, 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 it's a very, I mean, some people would say, no, he's just terrible and he's sexist, but I think there's a real tension there. And I know that we know that his wife, Jonquil was such a key element of his creative life and his life in general. Um, she was the one who at first wrote the letter of introduction to HP Lovecraft that really set Liber on his way to being, being a professional writer. Um, he really went into a tailspin when she passed away unexpectedly in the late sixties. Um, and so I think there's a genuine appreciation, but it is also married with these sort of very dated and icky elements at the same time. So. Absolutely. Um, and for me, um, this is absolutely my least favorite Fritz Leiber book I've read. It's my least favorite Thafford of the Great Master story I've read. It is one of my least favorite stories I've read for this project, period. Um, and what's interesting is Fritz Leiber and the Thafford and Grey Master stories. I've got one of their books in my top 10 from this collect- from this project we're doing. And this book is now in my bottom 10 from the books that we've done so far. I thought this book was um, at times incredibly dull. I thought it was really repetitive. And I also thought that there was um, just some really, really disgusting moments that I, 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 I'm, I'm not okay with. Um, specifically, it's in the Mershi and in the final kind of novel collected here. But um, I guess f- kind of zooming in on the, the one part of the final novel that really bothered me is there is it's literally 20 pages long. There is 20 pages where the mouser is watching Hisvet sexually assault and abuse her maids. And while he's doing it, he has an erection and a smile on his face. And Fritz Leiber really wants us to know how much Mouser is enjoying this. This is not the worst thing that we've read in the appendix set. But for me, there's a big difference between how this is presented and how sexual abuse is presented in other fantasy stories. You know, I love, I love, love, love um, Eyes of the Overworld. I love Jack Vance and the Dying Earth stories. Kugel is a monster. But the difference, though, is Kugel is somebody who is presented as a monster, who treats everybody like shit, and the world in turn treats him like shit, and he gets his comeuppance constantly. We also have really disgusting things happening in the Elric stories. But what's going on in the Elric world is this is a decadent kingdom that has non-human um, more has, has non-human values. And he and Elric is trying to get away from this kingdom and enter kind of the world of humanity. We had horrific things happen in Jack of Shadows, but in Jack of Shadows, we have a character who is degrading before our eyes and kind of falling into despair. And because of that, he's becoming this increasingly disturbed and evil person. But here in this, here, actually, on the back of this book, I've got some quotes about the about Fafford and the Grey Mouser. Um, Two of the finest creations in the history of modern fantasy, says Raymond E. Feist. And two of the most delightful creations in the history of fantastic literature, says Neil Gaiman. So here we have a character who is like depicted as being this like adorable, wonderful hero who we're supposed to really enjoy and adore throughout the throughout these works, standing there with an erection and a smile on his face while somebody's being sexually assaulted for 20 pages. It was really hard for me to read those parts because of the way it was depicted. Like in Game of Thrones, we have rape all over the place, but it's a dark, horrible world where where atrocities are happening and they're being framed as atrocities. This is not being framed as an atrocity. This is being framed as something really sexy that he's that he's that he's watching like right out of like the penthouse letters or heavy metal magazine. I don't know. I've been monologuing about this for a little bit, but I really want to kind of to lead with that so we don't have to spend all of this episode exploring all of this. But I'm curious if you guys have more to add to that or additional thoughts related to this. Uh, go for it, Himsa, if you unless <laughs> unless that's too much. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, obviously, obviously, I agree. Uh, and, you know, like, I feel like in my mind, I was like, maybe he's trying to be transgressive, but I think it's just dirty old man. And the male gaze is so high that ironically, I think you can read it as critique 
like how are Fawford and the mouse are so thirsty all the time? I mean, he's like literally buried in the earth and he can't stop dreaming sex dreams. Like it feels almost like the end of swingers when we like Vince Vaughn gets his comeuppance and it's kind of like, no, this is not a model for you, but that was a conscious decision. And I think Leiber just took it so far that he's kind of critiquing himself without meaning to. That's kind of the only way I could get through all that kind of distasteful stuff. Mm-hmm. And then obviously on top of that, as Rick Burns said, you know, the other elephant in the room is whether it's pedophilia or hebophilia, it's right on the verge of those, you know, with a lot of depictions of the younger girls in here. Yeah, um, that's a good point, because almost all of the sexual assault that happens in this are with 13 and 14 year old girls. And we're frequently yeah. hearing about their newly budded breasts or barely budded breasts. Yeah, yeah. Um, this book was nominated for the World Fantasy Award the year it came out. Just FYI. Uh, fantasy is the word <laughs> right there. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah. Um, obviously, uh, a couple things, and I'm never one to excuse stuff. I just like to say sort of in history uh, history and context. Obviously, this is coming out of uh, the library always had a libertine streak through him. And in the context of the 70s and 80s, of course, it was almost more everything goes, and you know, until AIDS put an end to that. Yeah. Um, the one thing, and like I was saying in the book club, I can't find the exact citation on this, but I do remember reading that some of the later stories, or maybe specifically that last story, The Mouser Goes Below, was written, not necessarily not intended for publication, but originally was written primarily to Harry Otto Fisher, as Harry Otto Fisher was in his last years, possibly on his, uh, you know, bedridden. And it was sort of just like a private, oh, here's here's something for you to have fun. You know, this is for you, my friend, a little thing. Um which is not to say it's still not totally dirty old man. It's like one dirty old man talking to another dirty old man <laughs> in a way. Um, very, uh, or as uh, Adam said, very penthouse letters. But um, so as, as uh, but as, as, as you were saying, SM, so it was so over the top that maybe it was, that was like almost like a little private joke between the two of them. But, but that once it reached publication, it's no, nobody has that context anymore. And then it just becomes ultimately incredibly distasteful at that point, you know? So I guess we can now possibly um, start chatting about what did work about Knight and Knave of Swords. Ahimsa, when you think about what was successful in this collection, what are some things that come to mind for you? Uh, you know, another bit of maybe inadvertent subversion, it's kind of the women that keep saving Fawford and the Mouser, which if you think about kind of their origin story, is quite quite cool and quite interesting. Uh, and not just the women, but sort of the community as well. So these sort of like, previously itinerant rogues are now actually being kept alive by the people around them. And I think there's something kind of neat with that. Yeah. We've got these two characters who have very much gotten through their life really by like the skin of their teeth and kind of with through their own wits and also frequently through luck and through who they know, all of those kinds of things. And now that they're later in life, they have found themselves as a part of a community and that community is very much kind of what's keeping them going and supporting them and keeping them alive through this. You're right. 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 And uh, to build on that, I don't even think it's um, unintentional um, because I do, again, sort of biographically speaking, as I understand it, uh, you know, again, Liber went through some very hard times. There was a period, I think, in the early 70s, even though his books were very successful at Ace, that he was, again, blocked. He was without his wife and he was living in a, basically an SRO. And just like with a bunch of like his typewriter and a bunch of old books and manuscripts around him. But then he was also, again, rediscovered by, you know, fandom, you know, Moorcock, you know, befriended him and a bunch of other people befriended him. And he started, you know, Gary Gygax invited him to write in Dragon Magazine. And and he was starting to make convention uh, appearances. And he had a sudden like mini revival and started being able to write again in sort of like the mid 70s. And so, again, I think that, again, an appreciation of discovery of community later in life. And that is reflected in this book. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and by the people who don't necessarily even have any particular reason to like them, like Groninger, right. <laughs> it's very kind of very just uh, door and just like, well, Hey, how much is this going to cost us? But still rises to the occasion to help them. Right. Yeah. And all those other people. <laughs> right. Uh, and, um, and I, I did like that, that sort of, there's a sweetness to that whole gathering of the people, like they're digging the pit and they're taking turns and they're making sure, you know, that people have soup and cough, gave, right. <laughs> And so there is there is a little bit of a, a sweetness to that to sort of counteract all the other, you know, it doesn't outweigh it, but it sort of is a counterpoint to the, to the other stuff here. 
Yeah, no doubt. And I know one of my quibbles with both this book and the previous book is that I'm like, where's the Lankmar? I want Lankmar. I love Lankmar. But also, in a sense, it kind of makes sense, too, because I, I think about how how New Yorkers often retire to Florida. And maybe Lankmar is the New York and Rhyme Isle is the Florida. Like they're getting older and they just they're looking for a slower pace of life. They don't need things to be quite so intense and and wild as they used to be. But their past is still kind of haunting them in a lot of ways, which I think is what he's trying to do with having all these women constantly coming back is it's kind of this idea of like the way that that our past haunts us. And as we're getting older, we're thinking more about the things that we maybe would have wanted to do differently. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that that's not done super well, but I can see that maybe that's perhaps what he's trying to get at with some of this. You know, I was, I would just add, I think this is sort of the, the end that the twain deserve. Um, You know, you think of like, you think of like the athletes that they, you know, like Jerry Rice thought he was really good, even when he was, too old. And I think you get some of the Fafra and the Grey Mouser. Um, they don't know their lack of grace and power. And, um, you know, they were ill met in Lankmar. So I think it's appropriate that they're sort of illy parted at the end as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nicely said. Right. And I think there's um, a lot of interesting things about sort of them making accommodations, although kind of subconsciously, to uh, um, Dan Alexander said the first story, he really appreciated. And he didn't really think about it, but until he read it, that was really an accommodation to disability and aging, you know, so Fafford's having to, you know, with his one hand now and trying to shoot the bow and, and, um, and so there was that appreciation of that. There's these, um, and, you know, I, I really like the, the effect that Afraid and Seif, we could talk, I mean, uh, some of the people said, oh, they were really disgusted about how they felt Fafford and the mouse were treating Afraid and Seif. But I thought it was interesting. It's, again, it's talking about these are people who've met later in life. So they know that everyone has a history. So they're willing to pardon this history as long as it's not thrown in their face, which unfortunately Fafford and the mouse kind of do in the last story, right? Just by being them. But, but, you know, hey, everybody has baggage. But as long as you don't, like, pile it on me, I'll take you for what you are. And so, that, again, that was an interesting thing that you don't always see um, in in sort of heroic fiction. So, Yeah. And I don't know that we have any necessary uh, that we necessarily have any evidence that Fafford and Greymaster were ever claiming to have been monogamous with Ifrit and, 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 and Seif. Um, It's also very possible that they, they knew what they were signing up for when they were getting romantically involved with these kind of rogues. Um, It's possible, but that's, again, it's not really outlined in either direction. We don't really know. One of the things that I think is perhaps part of the reason why the first story is maybe more successful than a lot of the other ones is because it was published in Dragon Magazine, and there is no way that Dragon Magazine was going to be publishing the really, really racy bits. So it's possible that having those constraints actually really helped him with that particular story. Um, like, for me, I'm a, I'm a big David Lynch fan, and... I love David Lynch when he is completely un, unhampered in any way. Inland Empire, Twin Peaks, The Return, I adore them. But I also understand that they are not for a lot of people. There are a lot of people out there who like they want their David Lynch with like very clear rails and restrictions so that he kind of stays within some boundaries because he also succeeds in a very different way when he does. And when he does have those boundaries, he can produce things that can be um, really amazing that more people will appreciate. But for me, I enjoy him when he's like not restrained. But sometimes restraining artists can make make the art interesting and also um, more palatable for a larger audience. Have you experienced any of this kind of stuff with your either fiction writing or with your um, game design stuff, Ahimsa? Yeah, I mean, I do. I do subscribe to the thought that uh, creativity flourishes when it has boundaries. Uh, I think you, generally you're going to get something better if there's some sort of initial obstacle to it. And yeah, un, undiluted Lynch is definitely too much for me. Uh, but probably, probably, honestly, probably like the Meatlandia books would be a lot more accessible if they were a bit more diluted as well. So. 
Right. And, and I think you were talking about that. That's a, uh, you were talking about a specifically transgressive fiction. You, you brought that phrase up, uh, you know, earlier on. Um, and I don't know that, yeah, at a certain point, if it's, if you do transgressive sword and sorcery, it doesn't become sword and sorcery. They just go straight on to like horror, right? At that point. <laughs> right. Um, because sword and sorcery is already veering very close to horror. It just has an element of heroism usually layered on top of it. Right. Um, uh, well, and also with when in the gaming side of the conversation, we frequently talk about the social contract at the table, but that's also something that exists in fiction. You know, you've got a contract with your fans about who these characters are when it's a when it's a decades long series like this. So if you if you're going out the gate with a very if you're I, I'm gonna I'm gonna use some words that like are not at all that don't actually describe what we're experiencing here, but might have been what Taff, what, what Fritz Leiber was going for. But if it's your goal for like a naughty, sexy um, kind of um, sword and sorcery set of short stories, that's fine if that's kind of where it's always been. If it's always been at that level, that's great. But kind of where this goes is so far from where they originally were that it really feels like there's been a bit of a betrayal of the audience, you know, and it's something we were chatting about in the patron book club prior to this, that like, that like when a band you adore releases brilliant album after brilliant album, and then they put out a really, really bad album and it can feel like an absolute betrayal. And in a way that's kind of how the last two had the last two um, Lankmar books have been for me. They just feel like a betrayal because they're so far from the quality of the books that preceded them. This feels like the Fawford and Gray Mouser book that Piers Anthony would have loved to have written. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Or Andrew Offit's, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, Playboy Press uh, p- uh, satire or parody of uh, <laughs> Fawford and Gray Mouser book. <laughs> yeah. And I, 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 it is possible that, you know, he was looking at like heavy metal magazine and things like that that were very popular at the time. And he was thinking, oh, maybe I should make my stuff racier. Maybe like racier stuff is what's selling right now. Or or maybe he's always wanted it to be racier. And now he started to feel like he now had permission to throw in, you know, throbbing erections and um, tweaking 13-year-old girls' nipples to torture them. Um, maybe he's been waiting all along to include those things. I don't know. Yeah. Or, you know, maybe he's just like at that age was like, you know, I don't give, you know, I, I, I guess you went, he died. Like, I think like four years after this book came out and he's like, okay, that's it. I don't care anymore. <laughs> yeah. As, which is more, more or less what you're saying, but you know, not necessarily that he always wanted that, but it's like, okay, I'm just going to go out with, <laughs> you know, doing whatever I can do. Now, Ahimsa, was this was this the first collection of Fafnir Greymaster stories you've read? It actually was. I was a little embarrassed to admit that, but I found this in the library, and it's the cover. It's one of the worst fantasy covers ever. It looks like a bad Greymaster cosplay. Uh, but you know, when I, you're nine or ten, like you're not really that critical, and I I didn't remember a thing from it. But yeah, I read this, and then then I tracked down the other ones and read those, and and this. It was good enough when I was 10 to get me into the series, but not good enough. I never reread it. Like it, it evacuated my, my mind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and by you mentioned the cosplay, I assuming you're talking about the uh, Daryl sweet cover with a, with a, a mouser with like the Napoleon hat and like Fafford with the big mullet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. exactly. <laughs> a couple of our, a couple of our readers had that in the book club as well too. That's such a terrible cover, but it's, it's, it is very funny. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. <laughs> So Ahimsa, one of the things that I was chatting about in the patron book club from the gaming side is um, I was I was talking about how one of the things that I think is interesting here is having our adventurers age and get older. And one of the things and in, in the way that we currently that most of us currently play D&D and other fantasy role playing games is we every adventure follows the next adventure and we're with the characters at all times So as they're leveling up and getting more and more powerful, that might be four years of campaign time in our world, but it's just like a few months in their world. And they've gotten super powerful in just a few months. But with Fafford of the Grey Mouser, with Conan, with a lot of these kinds of stories, we have protagonists who are aging between the stories and they're they're living big lives between 
between the individual adventures where lots of stuff is happening that's just completely off camera. I'm curious, do you feel like there is space for that in fantasy role-playing games? And if so, how do we how do we move ourselves in a direction where we kind of allow for that or encourage that more? I think there is space, maybe not in D&D, but definitely in fantasy role-playing. Some of the free league games like Forbidden Lands and Vason, when you do um, character creation, if you choose an older character, your stats are a little bit worse, but your skills are a little bit more. And that's one kind of crude mechanical way. But if it's actually sort of aging, I don't think that most people who play D&D kind of want to deal with ennui and loss and, and bittersweetness. So I, I would think you'd probably want another game or a specific sort of like hack of it with, with that emphasis. Uh, it, you know, uh, But I don't think for most people that's going to be what they're interested in, but I think it would be really awesome. Yeah, I was suggesting a mechanic where maybe at the end of each adventure, you roll a D4 and a D12. And on the D4, the one is days, the two is weeks, the three is months, and the four is years. And the D12 is how many of those have passed between those two adventures. And you can tell me what you've been doing with that time. That's quite cool. Uh, but is that is that between every session? Not every session, at the end of each adventure. When we conclude an adventure, when like we've introduced the plus and like they're yeah. going into the dungeon and they finished up that part, instead of now figuring out, okay, what's the next thread they're following, that adventure is done and then they're going to live some other life for a while and then that's the time that passes before we pick up on the next the next plot hook. So basically, the Expendables, the role-playing game, eventually, it's what it's going to be. We're getting the band back <laughs> Exactly. After, after you have taken care of the invasion of the Tuber Dudes, some time passes, <laughs> and then something else happens. Touche. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, uh, you know, there's there's games, and, and I mean, Jeff, you originally brought this up in the context of D and D, and this was actually specifically built into AD and D, um, probably by the nature of the like the, the way the games operated then, um, because you know Gary Gygax like you know strict time records must be kept, and, and you know uh, uh, the time between sessions was what happened in real time. Uh, so in other words, if you didn't come back to the table for two weeks, and two weeks would have passed between your you know you know for your characters, unless you were of course in the middle of an adventure. But that was a, a practical response, I think, to the fact that they had these giant tables and, as you were saying, Jeff, multiple uh, DMs playing in the same campaign world. Um, so you might have like five or six parties. So then he wrote very specific rules for like, you know, researching magic. It's there. Even in OSE, there is a very slimmed down version of that or a BX. Um, and the other games like... Um, I think Jeremy mentioned uh, Pendragon, where you only have one adventure a year, and then the rest of that is like managing your estate, you know, having heirs and doing all that. So, um, but in our sort of very accelerated age, especially with people mostly in the last two years playing mostly online, I think there's less attraction for that for a lot of people. But I still think there's room for that. I think, um, especially if people are, you know, on Slack or Discord in between sessions, you can say, okay, it's not something we do at each session but it's something that we can do between the sessions. And so that you come back to the next session knowing that, as you say, Jeff, that the 10 years have passed and what your characters have done for 10 years. But you'd have to give them some kind of balancing reward. Like, okay, been out for 10 years, but that means that your castle is now largely finished and you have uh, you know, a couple of squires who are like third level that you can bring along on your adventure with you or something like that so that you don't, they don't just feel your, the character's... Because even here in this book, Fafra the Mouser, they're not constantly de- degenerating because they've their their skills are not at their peak, but they're they have a community now, right? And they have uh, a certain amount of steady wealth. They're not they're not just constantly scrabbling for the last iron tick, right? They're they're trading furs with no you know no umbrosk and, and 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 stuff like that. So there has to be some kind of uh, superstructure, even if it's a little bit loose. Uh, so that Jeff, that you have like, oh, here's what hap- could happen in a day frame. Here's what could happen in a week frame. Here's what could happen in a month frame. Here's what could happen in a years long frame, mm-hmm. um, you know, between adventures. Yeah, I love that idea. The One Ring game has a fellowship phase that does some of that work as well. Right. I think one of the, was it Jeremy was also mentioning that, but very briefly. And I, but very, yeah, 
That makes a lot of sense, especially when you're thinking Lord of the Rings, when they stopped in Rivendell, it was like three months. Okay, we're, we're, we we got to stop Sauron, but we're going to chill here in Rivendell for three months. <laughs> now, Ahimsa, were there parts of this story that you're just like, oh, that's cool. I'd like to steal that. There were actually. Uh, and one, one of them made me think of you because the moon priestesses are kind of really cool clerics, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> It's true, yeah. I, yeah. Actually, I I loved the whole full moon ceremony. Uh, I was also just going to mention Death Warrant Assassins, super cool. Um, and some pretty neat world building, like the one never speaks of a ghost, and the, the phrase, the ill spells powered by brooding and overbearing malignity. Uh, imagine like some sort of brood sorcerer. That could be quite cool. Bro- uh, brooding sorcerer, I guess brood sorcerer would be different. Yeah, that is a really cool, really cool idea. In terms of things that I liked, uh, I mean, there's a lot to like. I mean, Lybrick could still write. It's, it's like his plotting and his concerns might have gone out the door, but he could still really write. Um, so that's just at the book level. Um, in terms of taking stuff, like, definitely the assassins were great. And yeah. I like that it's a little poke at sort of like very hammy actors because they have to like do so much to get into character. Right. And, and they get really irritated when people sort of like upset their rhythms. Um, so I think the assassins like sort of taking on the aspect of their intended victim is great. And they, and they can't do it like in some inelegant worry. They can't just like go up and, you know, shank somebody. They have to like, you know, really get close to their victim and, and be so almost welcomed by their victim. Right. So I thought that was, uh, great. Um, and I, I loved that as they were asking their friends more questions about Fafford and the Grey Mouser, <laughs> they were starting to look more and more like them the more they were yeah. learning about them. I also thought that was really cool. Yeah. And I think it ties in nicely with the whole kind of doppelganger as mm-hmm. an assassin that we see so often in early Dungeons and Dragons. Right. I like that element of dread that they introduced to people who just couldn't put their finger on it, but they walked in and knew something was wrong when the assassins were sitting there. You kind of sit there like cheerful, but they're sitting at the wrong table, right? And they're playing with, you know. <laughs> it's a little um, uncanny valley. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I like that. I liked the, uh, you know, um, I liked all the sort of trade stuff with, you know, Mouse are going to different places, getting different cargoes, and like, and that's reminded me a lot of like early traveler. Like, okay, we're going to go out on the fr- frontier here with our ship, our far trader, and we can jump two, we can jump two parsecs with a far trader, so we can go off the jump routes and get this weird cargo over here. Um, so you know, we can get lumber over here, and then, but they're really going to argue about it. But, but I have this one thing that they really want, and so I, I like that. You know, one thing I really liked that I think would be fun to kind of stat up would be the. Um, so when Fafford was flying, it was actually a weird spell where he was kind of surrounded by this bubble that allowed for him to swim through the air. And when he would drop things, it would kind of slowly just kind of travel down through this bubble. But then when it hit the outside, it would then just go like running, like just flying towards the ground. So clearly this like little magic bubble he was in was kind of like had its own kind of center of gravity. I thought that was really cool. But I also thought that because if you kind of drop things too far, it just goes cascading down to Earth, also adds in the very real peril of the fact that you are way up in the sky. Um, and, and that like little bit of flavor I also really dug. It reminded me of, um, um, Hoy, what was the story called that we were talking about? When the Sea King's Away? Yeah, When the Sea King's Away. When Simorgia, when they're under in the bubble, under in the... the yeah. Yeah. So in that story, there's this um, there's this basically underwater tunnel that's just it's just magic that's holding up the ocean as Fafford and the Grey Master are walking through it. But like the magic is starting to degrade. So now like the water is starting to leak through. So there's like that very real tension that like they might get crushed by the entire weight of the ocean. Um, so I, I, I like when the magic can be used to like let our characters do something, but we can throw in those elements to it that also just like really amp up the tension while that's happening. Right. And, and you bring up something also, uh, and I'll throw I'll pitch it back to you in a second. Um, I think that classic D and D one of the criticisms of classic D and D is that, um, spell, uh, spells are very, uh, binary and very defined, um, uh, and DCC less so. Um, but I think even in classic D and D, just one thing you could do is just instead of having completely fixed duration for each spell, you know, like one round per spell level, you give a little uh, plus or minus die, and so that there's just that little bit of uncertainty, like 
exactly how long the spell will last. Oh, maybe I'll push my luck. It hasn't ended yet. It should have ended at seven rounds, but it hasn't. Do I have a couple more rounds to like go underwater? Or on the other hand, like, oh, uh, wait, but you know, as a DM, you sort of have to like preface like, oh, you know, there's that, that like the water tunnel in um, Sea Kings, uh, when the Sea Kings away, it sort of starts pouching in and leaking a little bit. And you sort of yeah. give them a little hint that it might end early. And so they have to decide like, oh, I'm going to push my luck or I'm going to just like get that, get that, you know, GTFO, you know? <laughs> I like that. And I feel like I, I'm not a huge fan of the usage die. I, I, it seems like it's, it's, a, it's a weird mechanic for something that's pretty easy to track otherwise. But I feel like using the usage die for spell durations could be a really fun use of the usage die for exactly that reason. Uh, usage idea, brilliant. Um, the other thing is, Hoy said, push your luck. And I actually think RPGs are better off when we use some board game mechanics. So some some actual push your luck, uh, like, you know, as though it was a board game, I think could really strengthen uh, a session. So I think, yeah, I'm, I'm agreeing with both of you. Another thing that I thought was interesting in the story was how there was a geographical limit to their god's powers. And I'm curious if we think that would be a fun thing to try to incorporate into fantasy gaming. It would mostly be a way of um, nerfing clerics, I guess. But <laughs> Are these the gods of Nuon or the gods in Nuon? Well, all oh, right. The gods, uh, there's the gods of Lankmar and the gods in Lankmar too. Right, right. Um, um, I think it's a hard thing to keep track of, but it, whether it's geographical or whether it's in aspects, like, okay, well, you've got a god of fire, uh, so if you're a cleric of fire, you'll probably have a better chance in a volcano than you will have in the middle of the ocean of invoking their powers. And, you know, so that could be a little modifier, but then it puts a little bit of weight back onto the GM in that regard, unless you are willing to outsource that to your players and, and trust them to play fairly in that regard. You know? Um, and so actually, you brought up something kind of interesting. Uh, um, so you're talking about uh, mechanics and board game mechanics. So the idiom that you guys work off a lot in Night Owl is specifically OSEBX, which is kind of relatively clean, clear cut and, and not as, you know, gonzo per se as the kind of work that you're actually, you know, known for. So I was wondering what informed that choice in terms of your work. Uh, well, you know, OSE strips it down to to nothing, so it's kind of the the tabula rasa or the sort of the cleanest uh, the, the cleanest cut you can get, I think, uh, and that's why. Just because, like, I've only got into DCC recently, and we are thinking about doing a DCC adaption because I do think it's a na- more natural fit. But the nice thing about sort of BX OSC is just like it, there's no house rules; it's just as simple as it can be, and then everyone can kind of take it and make it what they want it to be. Sure, that makes a lot of sense. You can scaffold a lot of stuff on that, whereas you would have to strip a lot of way, stuff away from AD and D, for example, if you were working in there. Yeah, that exactly. makes a lot of sense. Uh, but does that ever like say, hey, you know, we want to do something that's like very bespoke, or is that just like that would be limiting your audience in some way? It, it's a good question, and I think there is for me always a tension there because BX really is trying to be a dungeon delver, and there's a lot. Like that's kind of the last thing I want to do in my role playing game. I'd rather kind of explore different worlds and whatever more social stuff. So, you know, I kind of do think there's a, a bit of uh, like a mismatch there or miscasting there. But um, o- overall, I think that that you can kind of make it work. It, it just depends on who's at the table. Now, if you were to look at just a a gaming rule system on its own that kind of best suits your style of play. Is there one that you feel like you would maybe be playing more or writing directly for if there is maybe more of an audience base for it? It's speculation, but yeah, yeah, I would like to think so. Yeah. Have you ever worked Mm -hmm. on your own fantasy heartbreaker? Oh yeah. 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 I am working on one. Yeah. Yeah. I am. It's sort of like a fantasy Marco Polo (laughs) sort of exploring. Yeah, exploring your uh, exploring like the known lands, but that are unknown to you, rather than sort of ruins and dungeons. Oh, cool! Okay. Is this going to be more hex crawl, more point crawl, something different? Something different. Yeah. Ooh. And and since you bring that up, I guess one of those elements would be sort of cultural interaction. And the one that's really always a big weakness in RPGs is is language rules. No one's ever come up with a really satisfying set of language rules. There you go. He raises his hands. That's what's that's the heartbreaker part. 
<laughs> there we go. Okay, looking forward to it. <laughs> okay. uh, but no, that makes a lot of sense, you know, and the sort of miscommunications and like, it would be really interesting, like as part of the set of uh, a game like that is like, you have to, um, part of your leveling up is that you have to report on this culture that you've met. And then like the more like interesting mistakes you make about it, <laughs> you get more XP by like the more interesting misinterpretations you make of this culture that you meet. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Which is also very dying earth and that like every, every, every town you go to has a completely different weird set of like rules and customs that you have to learn. And if you aren't able to follow them, you're going to be really offending people and getting yourself in big legal, legal trouble and potential mortal peril. Yeah, there's actually like, there I, I yeah. don't mean to derail, but yeah, there is like, there's going to be like amores and customs, like tables. So when you generate a, a new place, it's going to have its own language, its own mores, its own customs. That's exactly like, Vance clearly traveled around a lot. And uh, that's exactly the kind of thing. You know, other thing in fiction is combat's a failed state. Like even Elric doesn't want to draw his sword. So I think, I think like, be, putting that social stuff up front could be, could be quite, um, quite refreshing. Yeah, and I think uh, I mean you're, you're uh, talking to us from uh, Warsaw right now at the moment, right? So that's sort of um, be interesting to see when you come back that that the kind of that how that has informs. I mean, obviously you're already interested in it, but how that informs that and the fact of you're like talking across cultures and, and teaching across cultures, how that will inform this final design as it as it emerges. Right, and I li- I've I've lived in five different continents at this point. So that'd be great. And I like, uh, it'd be great as part of like the reaction table, like expanding that for like the cultural t- misunderstandings and taboos table. Like, you know, like what, what, what will uh, end, you, end up with you getting thrown into the lake and what will end up with you getting like, you know, <laughs> you know, tanned and, you know, skinned and tanned, you know, and, and then conversely, what might get you crowned as the king of, you know, the king, the king who has returned to us. <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. So Ahimsa, I'm going to, I'm going to assume Antarctica is one of the continents you haven't lived on. What is the other non-Antarctic continent that you haven't lived on? That's true. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Africa is the other one I haven't, I haven't lived on. Okay. Very cool. Well, I think we can go ahead and start wrapping things up. Ahimsa, do you have any kind of final thoughts about the story or was there something you wanted to chat about that we didn't get a chance to get to? The, my favorite, my favorite lesser character uh, is Makito because he's just so endearingly, mystifyingly loyal to Mouser. Like he won't believe his own eyes, and I find that super charming. And and also uh, Princess Fingers. I don't know. She's got a cool name. She's unflappable. Uh, she's kind of she's kind of cool. Yeah, I agree. Princess Fingers is rad. Yeah. Um, the one other thing that I really liked that I'd like to just kind of mention here briefly in this last moment was this idea that on Rhyme Isle, they're atheists. However, in a world where the gods are very real and we know that they're real, all that really means is being atheist just means that like you don't really socialize with the gods. Like you just don't really hang out with them or do things with them. And I thought right. that was a really fun take on atheism in a world like that. Right, right. Well, I have, remember having a couple of games where the character was like, oh, uh, one of the characters was like, oh, I, I won't take healing because I'm an atheist. So I'm like, dude, you cannot be an atheist in a D&D game. <laughs> you cannot have them do the gods, but you cannot be an atheist. <laughs> yeah. Do whatever you want. Um, but I do like the whole sort of uh, the whole society that's created on Rhyme Isle. There's sort of very, um, I think it's almost a sat- uh, satirical take on sort of any of those sort of like New England, Iceland, Scotland, those kind of very uh, pragmatic to the point of being unfun societies. Yeah. And were those your final thoughts? There's a terrible level of disappointment or potentially a terrible level of disappointment if you approach this thinking that this will be like the the magnificent capstone to the Fafford and Grey Mouser series. Um, So it's almost like I feel like if you do read this book, you then have to swing around or leave one of the other books in your pocket. So that if you do read this book, you can come back to one of the better books. But it is still, I think, worth reading um, as sort of a literary biography of Liber, right? Um, there's a ton of stuff that, and again, for all the reasons that we mentioned that are distasteful, if that's going to be something that will cause you distress to read this, then don't. But, and it's it's not a good capstone to Liber, uh, to Fafford and the Grey Master in our normal sense of heroics, but it is interesting to talk about what it is like to be a post-heroic. 
Perfect. So Ahimsa, do you have any projects that are coming out soon you'd like your listeners to know about? And or are there any specific things that you've worked on that you really feel like you that our listeners should go and check out if they are interested in finding out more about what you've done? Uh, August is is Zine Quest 4, they've said. Uh, so we're going to be doing a zine for that. Probably a giant petrified stoneworm dungeon. Um, when this comes out, I'll have just released a free kind of mythic Greece adventure through Exalted Funeral. Uh, and also a module where you get to play, it's called I'm the Bad Guy, where you get to play monsters coming out of the forest. Uh, that's going to be through Exalted Funeral as well. And we're still working on uh, printing up Aquatic Adventures and Deluge, which has a bunch of stuff from sort of luminaries of, of the OSR world. Very cool. And where can folks find you and or Night Owl Publishing online if you and or Night Owl, Night Owl Publishing wish to be found online? <laughs> Night Owl Publishing is at nightowlpublishing.com. Uh, you can find me at Ahimsa Kerp uh, at Twitter or on Instagram. I'm Ahi the Viking. So you just Google my name or Google Night Owl or you know, you'll find it. Perfect. And for those listening, it's Night Owl with a K. It's K-N-I-G-H-T. So, Hoy, where can folks find us? Right. Uh, if you uh, want to drop us a note, drop us a note as appendixandbookclub at gmail.com. We really appreciate your feedback. Uh, we're also on Twitter at, at appendix underscore N. Uh, if you like what we do, please rate us and review us on your podcatcher of choice, such as Apple uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Play. It does help people find us. And uh, what about our Patreon, Jeff? Our patrons are able to join us for our patron book clubs, which we record prior to getting together with our guests. And today we are joined by Rick Byrne, Dan Alexander, Jeremy Harper, and Adam Stiers. Uh, thank you for joining us. That was a very fun conversation. I would also like to give a shout out to a few of our other patrons. Thank you to Joseph Hoopman, Eric Hicks, Jeff Willett, Richard Ruane, Robbie Fioto, Jason White, and Demo Saklas. You are all awesome. Thank you for your support. Also, our patrons get to vote on which books we cover. And for episodes 130 and 131, we have our winners, so we can announce those. For episode 130, we will be covering Arkady and Boris Strugatsky's Hard to Be a God. And for episode 131, we'll be covering P. Jelly Clark's A Master of Jin. And when this episode drops, we will be dropping the uh, poll for episode 133. The theme for episode 133's episode will be Ghosts. And I have selected four <laughs> titles from the GURPS Spirits bibliography, books that uh, the GURPS Spirits supplement was suggesting we read. So the four books we'll be voting on are Mercedes Lackey's Burning Water, Anne Rice's The Witching Hour, Harry Turtledove's The Case of the Toxic Spell Dump, and Paul Anderson's Operation Chaos. So that's what we're working with for episode 133. All right, folks, get out there and vote. And I want to once again note the irony that this is time, the first time that Jeff has mentioned GURPS of his own free will on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I do have the GURPS books, and I, I still haven't played GURPS, though. I still want to play GURPS. All right, we'll work that point. out sometime. <laughs> okay, okay, cool. All right, Ahimsa, thank you for coming on the show today. This has been really fun. Thank you for having me. It was a blast. Oh, pleasure and honor, Ahimsa. All right, everybody. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed. <laughs>